10 minutes before half time Elliot pulled Chelsea level with a looping header over a rather flat-footed Hans Sagers Elliot scored five times for Celtic last season but it was his defensive qualities which really caught the eye now that he's playing in the capital he'll certainly come into consideration for an England cap and his power in the air is a valuable asset at set pieces Fellow Chelsea supporters, here at the Blue Day podcast, I am delighted to welcome this individual on the show today. He made 54 appearances for the club, scoring three goals. Plus, he played alongside the likes of Vinnie Jones, Andy Townsend and Dennis Wise. Here is Mr. Paul Elliott. Paul, welcome to the Blue Day podcast. How are you? I'm well. I'm very well, Keith. Delighted to be here. Thank you for your very warm introduction. Um, yeah, and obviously look forward to this uh, conversation lovely Paul I want to start the show um if I can we've sort of done this a few times with my previous guests by talking going back to your early days and what was your earliest memories of getting into football and starting to enjoy football well Keith I come from sort of South London I was born in Lewisham so I lived all around Lewisham, Plumstead, Abbeywood, Thamesmead, Brixton, New Cross, not quite Belsea's Park or Hampstead, but I'm, I'm very proud of my roots. And, and, and you know, I, like many of my generation, used to play Sunday football, playing for the ranks, played at school, played for representative teams. So sport, but, but mainly football, has always been embedded in my DNA of life. And, and, and my dream, like many others, I always wanted something that I would enjoy doing. And obviously being in sport was fantastic, but even more so playing in football, you know, was a... Uh, was an aspiration of mine from, with most players of my generation to be the best you can possibly be. And who were your idols growing up as a kid? Um, believe it or not, my best, my most idol is, is not a football idol. I mean, obviously, when you think about you think about Pele, you think about, you know, George Bess, who I just thought was remarkable. You think about uh, Sir Bobby Cholton. But particularly George Bess was just amazing because I'd never seen a player sort of domestically with such a wonderful repertoire of skill set and could make football look so easy. That's what he had done. But people obviously often said he worked extremely hard. He had a talent, but he worked extremely hard with that talent. So I admired him so much. But there's one particular chap who was a a boxer, Muhammad Ali. He was really my real icon because, in fact, many don't know my trade secret is I've got his middle name. So my name is Paul Marcellus Elliott. And I was born about three weeks after when Muhammad Ali beat Sonny Liston to become the first uh, world uh, heavyweight champion, you know, when he was a young man, when he was a boy. And, uh, you know, I was on, let's just say I was on the way to being dispatched from heaven. And my dad was at sort of Lewisham Hospital waiting for my mum to, to bring me here. And unfortunately, uh, I never came. I was scheduled to arrive on and around the night when that fight was, which was in the 25th of February. But I didn't get here till three weeks later. So my dad sort of, uh, he, he's a great fan of boxing. And it was just something that is, uh, he blessed me with his name, with his middle name. So um, as a couple, you know, the byproduct of that is that I took a great interest in Muhammad Ali and thereafter in boxing. Brilliant. That's a great story. I like that. Um, I want to start sort of talking about your, your time at Chelsea. I want to fast forward now to the summer of 1991. Yeah. You're at Celtic. You then yeah. get transferred over to Chelsea in, in, in the summer of 91. I believe the transfer fee, when I was going through my research, was about £1.4 million, which was quite a lot for Chelsea to spend back in 91. What, Firstly, what were your reasonings for joining uh, Chelsea? And what do you remember about that particular period of your career? Well, the reason for, for joining Chelsea was aspiration, number one. Number two, Ken Bates, the old man. Batesy, as we call him, <laughs> up to now, if I say to you, I spoke with him probably about six weeks ago. So, and I think, to be honest with you, if I look back on my career path, Keith, at that juncture, I started at Cholton, went to Luton, went to Aston Villa, first black player, English defender to play in Italy, went to Scotland, won the Scottish player of the year, self-club player of the year. 
I think I'd achieved a lot I wanted to achieve. And I've been on the road for a number of years as well. So I was ready now. And also I was at the peak of my powers, what, 20, 27, 26, 27. Mm. And I had aspirations to play for England, played for England youth, captain England youth, under 21s in England B. And I just felt that that was going to be highly, the probability of that happening was going to be more playing back in London with a club of the magnitude and potential of Chelsea. But, you know, Ken Bates was a big influence in that because uh, I remember he actually came up to watch me when we played one of my last games. It was the, uh, the Scottish Cup final. We got beat by one man in the match and, and, uh, and, and, and scored. And, uh, you know, he, he gave me a, a very warm welcome in usual Ken Bates fashion. So, um, and, it, and it was great. So I felt wanted. I felt valued. And ultimately, when you're a player, if, you know, they always say, go where you're wanted, go where you're valued. And I felt that about Chelsea instantly. You've mentioned Ken Bates as well. We might sort of touch on him later on in, in the show. But the manager at the time at Chelsea was Ian Porterfield. Did he have yeah. conversations with you prior for you joining Chelsea? Or yeah. what, what was yeah. his plans for you once you signed? Sorry. I've got a lot of love for Porter's Ian Porterfield. He was a wonderful man, a great man. And, you know, he said to me, I want you to become our leader. You know, Chelsea wanted a sort of dominant. Prior to me, they had some really good centre-backs. You know, Colin Pates, uh, McLaughlin, wasn't it, you know? Mm. Mickey Droy, the club had been steeped with dominant centre-halves. We had Ken Munkale was there at the time. And obviously, Cundy coming through and Frank Sinclair. But he said to me, you know, I'm oven ready. I'm ready now on the back of what I've already achieved in football. I'm ready to go. And then he wanted me to become his leader, to lead the club, to influence the club, to bring personality to the club to bring that to the dressing room. And, you know, that was music to my ears. And 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 I think Chelsea was in a period of transition as well. Um, so there was a project there. There was a challenge there. And, and and I think, you know, there were one or two other clubs that was interested, to be honest with you. You know, I heard West Ham was there. You know, they spoke about Nottingham Forest. You know, but Chelsea was a club that I really wanted to go to because I just felt it felt right. It felt right. There's a there's a feeling. It's a feeling. And I just thought, yeah, you know, a club with transitional, going through a transitional phase, um, really wants to evolve, got aspirations. So the timing was right. And, 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 and Ian Porterfield, he was central to that. So I was delighted. I was just so positive about the engagement and the communications. Do you remember your first day at training at Chelsea? Is considering the point that it was in this, this the same summer that one Vincent Jones joined the club as well in in the summer. You had the likes of yes. Joe Allen as well that that, that yes. came in. You had Dennis Wise. It was yeah. quite an interesting dressing room. Yeah, it was a, it was a full of laughter. <laughs> in inverted commas, full of surprise, but also full of uncertainty. Mm. <laughs> and I think it's the latter which probably uh, on a daily basis kept the kept the mood music really good. Listen, it was it was a humorous, it was a funny dressing room. And there was a guy as well, Tony Cascarino, who was a great guy and he had an unbelievable wicked sense of humour. We called Dennis Wise, we called him a rat. He was like a little rat around the place, you know, and, and Vinny was Vinny, you know, he brought a lot of that sort of Wimbledon spirit, uh, demeanour, fun. Uh, jovial uh, behaviour to the dressing room and then you know Joe Allen we called him Trigger I just love Joe he was a top class guy you know because you, you know we named him with his teeth after the racehorse you know <laughs> and he was so fun he was a great guy and you know when you just feel he is great for the dressing room and he's great for people he had that northern integrity about him but he had great humour as well Trigger and I loved him I haven't seen him since I left the uh, Chelsea and 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 you, you know when you look back and I think oh I, I I loved him he was a top 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 guy and he and that northern friendliness about him was always there I see it a lot in Scottish people as well Irish people as well I saw it in Scotland and Ireland and Joe had that coming from the northeast and it brought so much uh, you know uh, spirit and engagement to the dressing room. We've had Joe on the show before and he was such a lovely guy. You know, really honest. Yeah. As you say, really witty and really humorous. 
Well, touch on your debut, and you had a de- you had a very good debut to remember as well. You scored on your debut in yeah. a two-two draw against Wimbledon. 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 What are your memories of, right. of of that particular game, and how well did you think the fans warmed to you as well, knowing that you was a new signing at the club? I felt welcomed, you know, and, and I think sometimes, you know, because I always thought in the back of my head, coming from Celtic, what was that going to look like? And I, cause I think there was a kind of a Rangers contingent aligned with Chelsea mm. from a sort of fan base. But ultimately, all these things, with all the barriers I've broken down, when you show you're a good player on the pitch, that's all that really matters. And um, I remember my debut well was against Wimbledon. I remember marking Big John Fashion you, you know, who was, um, you know, not for the faint-hearted. I knew John well, and we always competed well because I played against him previously in the kind of old sort of first division and second division when I was at sort of Cheltenham coming through the ranks. So I knew he was a tough customer, but it was a good crowd. I mean, it was a very warm day at Stamford Bridge as well, very warm. And, I mean, scoring on my debut was, you know, the best way to sort of settle in and galvanise the supporters. It was, I remember, it was a ball, a corner from Dennis Wise, and it was flicked on at the near post, and I came in at the far post and put a header past, uh, past the keeper. And, and I was delighted, because that really settles you in, it embeds you, it ingratiates you with the, with the fan base, and, and it gets you off to a good start. And in fact, Keith, you know, if my memory serves me correctly, I also scored in my second game as well against um, Knox County right. at, um, at Stamford Bridge. And I remember then, it, again, it was, a, it was a header from a corner, and, and, and it come off, I think it was a ricochet off the bar, off the post, and I followed up quickly, so I had a bit of a, a striker's instinct to me, shall I say. So I think that quickly bowled me with the supporters. And I think thereafter, I went in to enjoy a, a fantastic relationship with them. And I can't tell you, for the last sort of 25, 30, I mean, I, I, I'm still involved. I do a lot of work for Chelsea so far as I speak at various events. And sometimes you don't realise how much you are loved and valued until when you're gone. Mm. And I felt it, my value... Obviously, at the time, of course I did, because I knew I made a big contribution at the club. And, you know, being one of their sort of first black captains as well, which was hugely significant at the time, given the issues of sort of racism and everything else and that was clearly prevalent in football at the time, that huge. But I just think they took a warm to me, to my personality, to my leadership. And I, you know, especially being injured, and, and I'm sure you'll touch on that later, you know, it, it, I think it really hurt. I didn't realise the effect it had on people, you know, and um, it made me feel so good to be as valued and as welcome as they made me feel. You seem to strike early on a good partnership with another central defender in Ken Munkow. What was he like as a player? Yeah. He was like a colossus. He was, he was built like a, a bodybuilder, to be honest with you, Ken. I mean, he was a strong, physical guy. I mean, he had good feet. And, you know, Ken was a good player. And, and, and obviously, we had a kind of partnership and there were bits of it that evolved very, very positively. There was other bits that were probably needed more work um, because ultimately centre-half playing pairs, you know, and they still do then and they still do today. You know, you play as a pair, you centre-half play as a pair. And other tactics and that's changed, but there's certain fundamentals. So, you know what, I mean, I saw Ken, I think I saw Ken probably about a couple of months ago. At Chelsea, was at a CPO event, and it was great to see him. He looks well, he looks fit, and mm. we always talk about the great days, and he's, he's a good mate of mine, Ken. I've got a lot of time for him. It was also this sort of early period of your time at Chelsea that you also took the captain's armband for a little bit while I believe Andy Townsend was, was injured. How did that make you feel in yeah. terms of sort of having that leadership sort of res- responsibility? I think he brought on my game. I mean, I always believe with all the clubs that I've played on, played in Italy against, you know, Maradona, Baresi, Costa Corta, Rijkaard, you know, Van Basten, you know, playing in Scotland against, you know, Mark Haley, Mark Waters, Terry Butcher, Richard Goff, Gary Stephen, Trevor Stephen. You see where I'm coming from? Yeah. yeah, you, you, yeah. you know, um, so I think, if I'm being honest with you, Keith, I think I had the leadership qualities in me, you know, but to formalise that within with an armband is completely different, isn't it? Because then you're taking that responsibility, you're being seen as the captain, and, and there's a great level of expectation responsibility that comes with that. And, and it was one that I relished. I'd met a lot of players that, at all the different clubs I've played at, 
I like playing in big games. I like playing against top players. And having played four times against Maradona, you know, Hullet, Van Basten, Rijkaard, top players in the first division when I was at Luton Town, you know, Gary Lineker, Kerry Dixon, Graham Sharp, Ali McCoy, Mo Johnston, going to Scotland and playing against Haiti. So you see where I'm coming from? Yeah. I love playing on those big platforms. I'm very comfortable. You know, I've got the mindset and the mentality to play at that level. And I think for me, having the armband was kind of, it was kind of confirmation of, I've always been that in the way I've played and led the game and led people. But you've actually got it on your arm and you're, you're the captain, you're the general, you're the one that people relies on. And not just about your own performance, but also impacting others around you and supporting the young players as well. So I really felt honoured and, and embraced that responsibility and the leadership that came with that. And as you say, when you sort of discuss about the young players, we did have quite a few young players coming through the ranks at Chelsea. Yeah. When you talk about Frank Sinclair, Jason Cundy as well, just to name a few, but there, there was obviously a, a few yeah. a few others. Eddie Newton, Eddie yes. Newton, Andy Myers, mm. David Lee, you know, there, you know, Bobby Stewart, Graham Stewart, you know, yeah. we call him the bid to be honest with you, Keith, because, you know, in training, whoever was the poorest performer always got a yellow bib, and it seemed like he had the bid more than most during the week. <laughs> but thankfully, he performed at the weekend. So that's why we call him the bid. You see what I mean? So he, we, we love, I love, I love Bobby. So they, they were very talented boys. And, and Chelsea, if you remember, even from the 70s, you know, had a great history of bringing players through the ranks because okay. that was the model, wasn't it? Back from the 70s and the 60s and that was straight into the 80s and the 90s. And so they were very talented kids and I felt a sense of responsibility to support them, you know, to mentor them, to get the best out of them, to enable them to develop, grow and flourish. Later that season, Chelsea actually did quite well in the FA Cup. We got to the quarterfinals where yeah. we would face a Sunderland. Looking back now, remember that then. How much of a missed opportunity was this? Bearing in mind the other teams that were in the competition as well, like Norwich City and Portsmouth, I believe as well that were in there. Considering who was left, this was a huge opportunity that huge. could have been for Chelsea. Yeah, huge. I remember the um, the first game at Stamford Bridge, wasn't it? Because I believe, so if I'm if I'm wrong here, Keith, we were. We were comfortable and they got back into the game, didn't they? Which forced the replay. They scored late, yeah. They scored very late, didn't they? Yes. And I was devastated because the game, we should never have got, you know, we should never have allowed. We were really, it was a lapse in concentration. It was just such a poor goal to give away. And I knew then from going back, it was going to be a tall order, you know, because that, you know, the Sunderland fans were great supporters. I remember the game, it was very intense. It was packed to the rafters. And it was a fantastic game, you know, um, um, and it was a, such an opportunity miss, you know, because, um, you know, we, I think we got through, we played against Oxford, you know, I think it was Oxford. And, you know, we just, it's one of these competitions, there was a clear pathway. Yeah. There was a clear pathway. Yeah. A lot of the big heavy heavyweights were out of the competition and we should have, we should have got to that final. We should have got, I'm not saying we would have won it, but we should have got to the final. And if I'll be honest with you, that was probably one of the biggest regrets because it's one of the best opportunities. Mm. At the end of the season, you was rewarded, though, with the Players of the Year award yeah. at the end of 1992. How satisfied was you with your first season in, in total? It was brilliant. And I'll tell you the reason why. Because I think that year... I got into the cop called up for the full England squad as well, you know, which was great. And, you know, for all the reasons I want to be back at Chelsea playing against top class competition week in and week out. So against, you know, you know, it was everything that I wanted. And I think too, when you talk about respect and, and values, the, the respect of the supporters is important. Of course it is. But ultimately it's your players as well. You know, the, the players are the one that you work with day in and day out, week in and week out. And, I've, and, and I was very fortunate. I had a very strong rapport with the supporters. And, you know, but I was honoured to receive that. And I remember where it was. It was a, 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 a club over in Vauxhall at Nine Elms. And Ken Bates gave me out the award. And I, I've seen some of the onside magazines. I wore like this orange 
sort of you know tangerine jacket with a kind of a black <laughs> a black shirt and uh, I met the old man making a very by his standards we call Batesy the old man that's what we call him and made a very eloquent elegant speech and I said to him where did you get that language from so I didn't realize I said you, you know usually every word is an expletive Batesy you know so and he, he was in hysterics you know uh, and he said to me he's learned from me so it's um <laughs> but it, it was it, I remember it was a great night I think it was a really great tribute and it made me feel that I'd really arrived at Chelsea by winning that and um up till now I mean I've still got that next door I've got the uh, I've got the trophy and it means a lot to me and it's one of the things that I always because I won the equivalent when I was in Scotland which was great as well as a Scottish player of the year I won the Scottish supporters of the year and the Scottish player of the year so I was just honoured that that's how people feel about you the people that matter that's how they feel about you and that gave me tremendous pride and um, a real sense of privilege. Brilliant. I want to touch on the next season because this one was quite significant in more ways than one. Uh, the yeah. country would see the formation of the English Premier League, which would change English football f- forever from the beginning of 92 to no- the no- 93 season. I've touched on this with a couple yeah. of other players that we've had in the past that were around in, in this time that were that were playing in, uh, for Chelsea. But for you personally, what did you make of the sudden change? Was do you feel that this would have at the time had an impact with with players in terms of not obviously playing on the pitch, but out off off the pitch, like for example wages and other means like that? Yeah, I mean. To be honest with you, Lawrence, nobody was, you know, when all I want to do and all players want to do is play football. I think it's one of these things, hindsight is a great thing. I think even the people, the top level administrators that run the business of football, in no way they would have anticipated the scale and magnitude of what the Premier League is yeah. on the basis of time what it was because if you look at it nobody would I mean if we talk about the Premier League today it's got a global audience of 4.6 billion it's in 195 countries you know the the value of the broadcasting rights now worth 7 billion pounds so if you rewind back 30 odd years I don't think anybody saw the scale and the scope of that eventuality I think people would have thought okay then What's going to be the difference other than the name? Because it's it's effectively the same teams, but it's been a rebrand. But I wasn't convinced. Whilst there was a level off, yeah, there's going to be greater income to a point, greater commercialization of the point. Nobody really anticipated kind of the global impact of the Premier League. And I think like all these things, you kind of get rather fortuitous in the journey. And nobody saw it, what it looked like, just like wages, isn't it? If you think then the top wages then, and I remember was like Gary Lineker, John Barnes, and I remember reading this the other day, they were on there about sort of half a million pounds a year. That's £10,000 a week. Now, fast forward 32 years, yeah. and then you're talking players there in the Premier League are earning £400,000 a week. Mm. So nobody, and that's as obviously as a byproduct of the commercialization of the Premier League and the brand and, 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 and the global impact of the brand. So nobody anticipated what that would have looked like. Nobody be on their wildest dreams. Not even the business people that were contributory in forming the Premier League. They thought it would have made money, but not to that scale and creating that level of, of a global brand and impact on the game. And also with the foreign players, isn't it? You know, nobody would have anticipated, you know, the diversity of the global game being so prominent now in the Premier League and the Premier League being the number one league in the world. So I had no, I wasn't cognizant of the scale of that, but I don't think anybody else was of the potential. So at the start of the new inaugural Premier League season, Chelsea did struggle with results and there was a little bit of inconsistencies. Was you surprised with the the sort of start that Chelsea had? Because I I remember obviously speaking to a few Chelsea Chelsea fans at the time and they had high hopes for Chelsea that particular season. They liked the squad. There was sort of a little bit of hopefulness about where Chelsea could end up on that particular season. But the results sort of at the beginning of the season 
wasn't there as much. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it. I think it's about transition, and you know, and I know. I think, like all these things, and I've seen it in the game. Investment is key, and I just think you. There's two sorts of model here. Chelsea had a strong base for a youth, and it was about giving those kids opportunities, which they got, and obviously having three or four what I call oven-ready players, and they had that in myself. Kerry Dixon, Dennis Wise, Andy Townsend, Vinnie Jones, say, Dave Bezin, Bezingol as well. So mm. I think that, and Steve Clark, who's gone on to become an illustrious uh, coach. So I think we, we had a kind of a good balance, but it, I think it was just that first season, you know, just trying to everybody getting to know each other, trying to get some consistency on the field. And I think there was transition going off, off the field as well about the stadium being upgraded as well. Hmm. So obviously in terms of finance, Keith, you know, all the finance weren't there to go and spend heavy. So I, I think we, we, by Chelsea standards, there was good investments made, for sure. You know, we was never going to compete at the highest level, but I think it worked. And, and, I, and I appreciate working in the club now, you know, where that balance is between youth, giving youth a chance, ready-made players, and then you've got the investment in the club infrastructure itself as well. So there's lots of moving parts, and, and it's very demanding. And because obviously other clubs have got deeper pockets than others, they can go out and spend by their standards big money. But I think from Chelsea's perspective, it was like about a first season of consolidation. Keep our head above water. Everybody can learn and grow, you know, with this sort of Premier League and what it looked like. And then thereafter, you know, steady investment into the football club. Well, fast forward now to the game at Anfield, 5th of September 1992. Before we touch on the obvious, I'll touch on, uh, from from a player's perspective, about Anfield itself. Now, it's not Anfield as it is now. And it's not Anfield as it was in the 70s when it was a bit of a, mm. a very intimidating atmosphere. What was Anfield like mm. in the sort of early 90s? It was still very intimidating because remember, right. I mean, I played, I played at Anfield previously with Luton in the first division under David Beat. I was only 18 years ago, 18 years of age, and Aston Villa, you know, with, um, with uh, Graham Turner. And Liverpool was just as intimidating, especially when you're up against Daglish, Ian Rush, Graham Souness, Ronnie Whelan, Mark Lawrenson, and, and, and Alan Hansen, and Bruce Grobler in goal, Steve Nicol right back, and Phil Neal left back. So I think it, was, <laughs> <laughs> it never changed. <laughs> never and tried. Then, so, so it was, listen, you still had that intensity of the support there, but, you know, more importantly, you had this wonderful array of, you know, we use, you didn't see it at the time, but unquestionably there was world-class talent, you, you know. And when you talk about Davies and Rush at their pomp, you know, with Graham Souness, Alan Hansen and Mark Lawrenson, I mean, it doesn't get much better than that, would it? Let's be honest with you. So playing against that at that level, I just think was great for a player. Great for a player. So, you know what? Anfield was still intense. I don't think it necessarily had the intensity of the 70s and certainly doesn't have it now. But at that time in, in, in the 80s, 90s, my goodness me, it wasn't for the faint-hearted. But I loved playing there. And again, it was about personality, playing on those big stages and, and, and comparing yourself with them. You know, and, and from my standpoint, after playing in Italy against Maradona's, Van Basten's, Hullets, Rijkaard and that, you know, I had no worries about going to play at Anfield and playing against Dave Leach because of Rush because they're of the same quality. They're top quality. And you learn, you know, and, and by the way, you know, you, let's just say a few of the games that I had a very busy afternoon as well because, you know, with all due respect, Dave Leach and Rush, they're, 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 they're the real deal. So it was, a, it was a great, great experience, great intensity. And I remember the day clearly as it was yesterday. Now, the tackle by Dean Saunders... Yeah. Your initial reaction to it, what what was going through your mind? Because it was two guys trying to win the ball. It was it was a loose ball. There was two guys trying to win it. 
when you when you got injured, did you realize early on that it could be a significant injury? Did you feel that it might be something that may take maybe weeks, months to recover? What was your early initial process going through your mind? Excruciating pain of the worst order. Right. That's the sentence. I've never felt pain like that ever. Um, And once I saw the tackle, we played the tackle, and then obviously understood more about the severity of the knee. You know, the, the, the doctor said he was a very prominent, eminent doctor, a man called David Dandy, that done repairs with me on my left knee and whatever. And he said to me, Paul, this is a very serious injury. Um, and I remember, you know, there was like what you call a 15-inch abrasion on the knee. That's a swelling. So what effectively you're saying, that wasn't caused by what one calls as a standard challenge in football. Um, so to answer your point, and I think it was, the, I remember the pain. Mm. The pain, this isn't pain that I have ever, ever, ever experienced. And then when I saw the videos and then when I saw the way I was sort of, I was reeling from side to side holding my knee, you know, that evidence to me, the scale of the discomfort. I remember when I was going through the footage after sort of the, when I knew that you was going to come on the show. And the one thing that was quite telling was seeing Andy Townsend's face as soon as the challenge comes in. Yeah, 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 and he's gone straight to the bench, thinking this. Well, the, yeah. this is not like that, isn't he? Just to let yes. me get over. I didn't see that, but you know, he's gone like that. He could tell. Um, mm. Yeah, and, and, and that was as a consequence of my behaviour, wasn't it? In, my behaviour, insofar as me evidencing how painful it was, how I felt, and my posturing. Um, well, yeah, because and also. No one has sort of seen you down that long. You know, you're, you were the type of defender that even if you got injured, right. you'd, you'd go back up because you wouldn't want to show your striker yeah. any weakness. But the fact that... Correct. Correct. And even Dennis Wise went up to the referee yeah. and he was talking to the other player. It was, a, at the time, yeah. players were, were just shocked. I mean, you we've seen sort of injuries yeah. that have caused players to... yeah. Yeah. In their in their careers, and you could see how much it affected them seeing it on the pitch. And but you saw that with the Chelsea yeah. players. So something that I did want to sort of speak to you about as well. And you got so you got certain fans that have their views on it. You know, certain fans have basically still not forgiven him. But have you spoken yeah. to Dean since that particular no. incident? None, because I, I didn't receive a phone call. Uh, he didn't reach out to me uh, by a phone call. Um, I recalled receiving a note, I th- and it was a, ca- a carefully crafted note. Um, but I think that I would have expected somebody to pick up the phone and say, you know, mm. and that was over what, close to what, 29 years ago? Um, mm. And I think, let's be quite honest with you, you know, okay, it was the first year of the Premier League and it's about understanding what challenges look like, what they don't look like. But I think in any generation that that challenge would have been unacceptable and it was reckless. There was a reckless disregard for the safety of the player. And and, and if you recall, I actually got booked for it as well. I received a yellow card, yeah. which I think is rather... Um, Odd, to say the least. And that referee, John, I think it's John Keane, okay, he was suspended from, he didn't referee a game for the rest of that season. So I think there's a kind of veiled messaging in that. That's interesting. So there are all the other elements that factor into that consideration as well. So I, I think it wow. would have been sporting and professional you know, because I'm a big man, a grown guy, and, you know, everybody else has their reasons why they wouldn't make contact. And um, I think there should have been a bit more 
respect, you know, for the individual because I know if I would have done that, you know, at the appropriate juncture, you know, I, I would have picked up the phone, seen in person, whatever, but I certainly would have, I would have behaved a lot better than what I had received. In a certain element, do you believe that Saunders went for the ball or do you think he went for something else? And, and that's, it's interesting because my view is if, as he claims, there was an opportunity, it wasn't, it wasn't what I call a standard challenge for the ball. No. It wasn't what I call a standard um, and you know the, the truth of the matter is, you know, if, if we're getting if we're cutting to the chase, you know, it was a two-footed tackle, which is reckless, dangerous. I would not consent to that type of challenge. Um, any sane person, and, and I can say to you that I've spoken to many good footballing people and people of the likes of, you know, since then esteemed managers and coaches in the game, they couldn't believe the type of challenge that, that, that I'd received. It was totally against the laws, outside the laws of association football, um, and one that I would not consent to. So I accepted that, you know, and, and you know, I tried to get recourse, but obviously I never got the desired outcome. So, you know, what life has taught me, you know, you have to move on. What I'm not, I'm not bitter. I'm not an angry guy. I'm not a resentful guy. You know, I would have loved to have played for another five or six years because I was fit enough. You know, I was playing at my peak. Because I, I love the game, I love football. But I've been very fortunate thereafter to transition and be a very central part of what I do now in football you know, for the last sort of 28, 29 years, I'm very proud of what I achieved. So whilst there was disappointment at the time, whilst there's probably anger at the time, you know, you learn that you have to get through that because life taught me that if you're, if you're going to bring these self-inflicted, strong opinions, it has consequences for yourself, for your own well-being, for your own organs. So after the initial shock of everything and then what happened, I realised then I had to get on with my what I call my second life. You know, and I had my second life was my sort of son in tow at that time. He was on route, there were some complications with the birth. And then, you know, it gives you a what life is really about, you know, what what really matters in life. And uh, and notwithstanding that abrupt ending with that injury. If I look back on my career, you know, from a 16, 17-year-old kid at Charlton Athletic, you know, getting into the first team, joining Luton, having that fabulous game at Luton when they played at uh, Manchester City, going on to some big things, playing for my country, playing in Italy, you know, against some great players, playing in Scotland against some great players, coming to Chelsea, being their first black team, playing against some great players. See where I'm coming from, Keith? Yeah. You have to take good out of the, good out of what you've done good out of the adversity and then be progressive that way in, in my life because I've seen a lot of people struggle to do that and seen the challenges with people particularly psychologically and mentally so I was very sure that that's what I didn't want to go down so I've just used that sort of leadership positivity energy to create and, and make a second life which I think I've done successfully it was in 94 that it was, I believe it was confirmed that you would have to retire because of the injury. You've tried yeah. going to rehabilitation. You tried to sort of see, try and get it sorted with your knee. Yeah. It obviously didn't work out. How did that sort of make it across to you when you sort of knew then that you had to retire? Yeah, it was it was it was tough because you know you're thinking what next then you know because what happens is okay, you're part of a dressing room you're part of a structure you're part of 
you're part of a world that it's kind of you spend more time with them and what you actually spend at home. Hmm. So you've created like a second home, a second world within a football club that's embedded in your DNA of your day-to-day living and life. And if you think about it, you know, Monday to Friday, you're working with these players and then you're working with them at the weekend and your match day or sometimes in the week. So I've had that kind of intensity since I was 16 years of age. And it's like it becomes a way of life. Like this, and it's like you kind of think you can't see or look beyond that life. And when there's a, a progressive, like it does for everybody, you know, you reach a progressive point where you've hit your curve and then obviously there's a tailing off and you're getting older. But I knew I was in the peak of my game. You know, and I, I was a very fit guy. I think one of my characteristics was that I was very fit, very strong, had good mobility. You know, I knew in my heart I would have I would have played till I was 35 because I was fit enough and I loved the game. I loved the game of football. I loved training. I loved playing. I loved being an elite footballer, looked after myself, especially when I played in those multiple environments, particularly in Italy, and understood about my body, you know, how to look after it, how to preserve it eat the right thing, live the right way. So I knew I was a very, very good professional. So I think it was kind of that abruptness of all of a sudden, you're not going to go into training on a daily basis. You're not going to be part of the football club on that day from Monday to Friday. You know, you're not going to have, you know, people talk about the, the dressing room banter and all those things. You know, you do genuinely miss that. I did miss the people. I missed Ken, the old man. I missed the players, Andy Townsend. You know, uh, we call him Beaky because of his nose. We missed Trigger. <laughs> you know, I missed Tony. Pat. You know, I, I missed. You know, the, the brothers we call him Eddie Newton, Frank Sinclair, Rodders. You know, David Lee, uh, and and that was the transition of that. That was the challenging part. Yeah, and I think also because I was very popular at the club, and then Glenn Hoddle come in, and then he made me club captain so you know that was that a way of kind of bringing me closer to the dressing room closer to the players closer to the wider things within the club and then obviously once I became a bit more mobile I was doing some youth team coaching you know taking the youth team and the reserves which I really enjoyed so that was hard the transition of that is the hardest thing you can imagine a player today but I think my generation was even harder, was even harder, I think. Um, so that was all part of my own evolution and growth as a person, as an individual. And I think my character, my strength of character, my leadership um, allowed me that transition to be easier, but it was still extremely hard. Touch on Glenn Hoddle quick before we do, do touch on something more um, special and more of a, a positive note. What was Glenn Hoddle like with you when he came in? Because he came in in the summer of 93, didn't he? Now, at the time, you were still, say, for example, on the yeah. injured list, for, for instance. What was he like dealing with? Magnificent. Empathetic. Honourable, caring, not just a great player, player of the highest level, but he was a great man. And you know what? They always say you judge people how they are with you. And Glenn Hoddle, just like Ken Bates, just like Ian Porterfield, they were remarkable with me. And, and I think I'd like to feel it was also because of their decent people but also I think it was as a consequence, hopefully, of my impact on the club as well, you know, during my, my, my short time there and the way that I impacted the club in a very positive and meaningful and sustainable way. And I had a great rapport with Glenn. Glenn was just the most empathetic man. And for a man that has achieved so much great success, you know, it's arguably his, one of his finest qualities was his humanity. And that was evident in the way that he tra- treated me at all times. Speaking of making a positive impact on certain individuals, I want to talk something more positive and something a lot more meaningful for you and your family. Fast forward to 2003, you was awarded an MBE for your 
work with young players yep. and your involvement with anti-racism in- initiatives in football. Fast forward even to uh, to twenty twenty twelve, and you was awarded a CBE yeah, yeah. for your work in equality and diversity yeah. in football. Yeah, yeah. What yeah. a moment for you and your family to have those honours bestowed onto you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Talk about it. It was it was amazing. I mean, to go, I got one of them. The initial honour I got from the uh, Queen, the late Queen. Queen Elizabeth was my MBE, met her and it was wonderful. And she she was really humble, very graceful, very eloquent and thanked me for my positive contribution in an area that's so important to society and community. I remember the words, that's exactly what she said. Wow. And I got my CBE, the Command of the British Empire from Prince Charles. Um, and he was, because, and he understood it really well because of the work that he'd done with the Princess Trust and understood the value of football and how you could use football as a, as a, as a real uh, tool and a catalyst for change. And it, it was, I was humbled, I was honoured because my kids were there as well, as, 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 well, as, my, as well as my wife, Matt. Um, and, it, and it meant so much to us as a family. It meant so much to me because uh, it was kind of recognition for an area that was very difficult, not just in football but in society and I've seen all the issues I mean I had all my own very difficult challenges with racism in England in Scotland in Italy so because when we talk about racism it's a societal problem not a football problem that's right football is doing some brilliant work to use the power of football to address these wider social issues so for me it was absolutely fantastic it was euphoric it was a moment that you know if ever you're going to have some great moments post your career, I think seeing my children being born was 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 first and second, you know, because that's a great thing for me. My children being blessed to come into this world, but then also receiving those honours, you know, from from our from our late wonderful Queen Elizabeth II, and obviously you know King Charles III. I think uh, that really really meant something to me because that area of work has given me such a great sense of purpose, a great sense of influence, a great sense of using my influence and my power to make social change. And I think that's been the the shining light out of my adversity as a player. I I transitioned those leadership skills on the field of play to influence society, community, boards, you know, UEFA, the Football Association. You know, I co-founded Cricket Out in 1991, 92, while I was still a Chelsea player. So I knew, if I'm being honest with you, that was going to be my calling in a strange kind of way, to use my power, impact, leadership, personality, to make change for the betterment of football, but the domino effect of that would be for society and communities too. And that's what I've been totally dedicated with the last sort of three decades of my life, which has been, if ever some people want to become coaches and managers, those opportunities weren't there for, for my generation, quite quite frankly. But to be able to create something different, to make that positive contribution, so future generations can have those pathways and opportunities to transition from, to become coaches, administrators, work in football clubs, work across uh, uh, football clubs and society, that fills me with immense pride and pleasure. And absolutely deserved as well, because I know the amount of work that you've done, as you said, we we touched on it before we recorded about your time doing the Charlton Community Trust and everything else sort of above board as well. Absolutely deserved. We're going to sort of touch on just a couple more things before we wrap this up. And we're going to sort of, go from the brilliance to the absolute ridiculous now and talk about something that many, many people have scratched their heads over and wanting completely gone from football, and that's VAR. Now, Paul, what's your take on the system? Um, Is it the system? Is it the people running it behind the scenes? What's your take on VAR? Well, I'll tell you what, I remember when it first first came, I, I went back to school and studied and got a master's degree, the way for executive master's degree. 
to get my education to enable me to do a lot of the work that I do. And I want to be more qualified and more educated. And, and there was a gentleman there. He was the conduit that I met, a guy called Rossetti, who was an ex-referee. And he was speaking about it at one of our events. And in my group, we had some great players. When, was, when I was doing my UEFA executive, uh, at MIP, we had Stelian Petrov, Louis Garcia, Gilberto Silva, Carlo Torre. We had some great players, you know. And I remember we were all looking at each other thinking, this, we wasn't feeling it, basically. <laughs> because I, my, my contribution to the debate was, if, if there was something, there's two things I didn't want it to happen, to happen with VAR. It, it would affect the fluidity and take the euphoria out of football and take that feeling out of football when you score a goal, there's a euphoria. I didn't score many goals, but the ones that I did, there was there's this euphoric moment when you're just lost in yourself and your own emotions from scoring a goal. And it's taken, it's ripped that out of the game. It's and there's and the consistency of decision making. So we were discussing that all of the time. And, and we're thinking. And you can see what's happened is it started as an aid. But now it's become the key tool and the dominant factor in the decision-making organ, which it shouldn't be. The referee must be the daddy at all times. And from my professional opinion, that's one of the problems. you know. And if you look at the last World Cup, one of the reasons why the last World Cup was very successful because the referee had complete autonomy to go and look at the monitor and make the decision. And I find it very hard to fathom and difficult, you know. I've got no issue with Stockley Park and people contributing to the decision-making process. But ultimately, it has to be the referee that makes that judgment, because he or she is in that environment, in the stadium, in the moment, and they are the most important authorities to make that accurate decision. So you've got the fluidity. You've taken euphoria out. You've got the lack of communication, and it prolongs the decision-making organ. So I could go on and say more, but these were all the things that I gave consideration to at that time when it was first conceived. And, you know, I'm on a WhatsApp chat with all our sort of, you know, UEFA executive, my board members and our, my friends, and... Everything that we were saying then has been evidenced now. And people realise now, sometimes don't break it if it's not broken. Because I don't think it's enhanced the game. And I think ultimately it's the human eye. The clear technology that we've got in this country is video analysis if the ball crosses a line or not. It's clear, it's unequivocal. And I'm surprised that still now, with the enhancement of technology, that we've still not created an aid that's bringing even more consistency to the decision-making organ. And if you look at some of the decisions that's been made, they are, it's ex they're poor decisions. Scandalous, constitutes? <laughs> I know I've been politically sensible. <laughs> What constitutes clear and obvious? Because what I see is clear and obvious. Somebody else doesn't clear, see clear and obvious. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's affected the fluidity of the game. You know, it's undermined the referees. You know, it's, it's taken the euphoria out of scoring. If you're in a stadium now for the supporters, the lack of communication, they can't even uh, naturally embrace that celebration. When you score, that you score... You, you lose that and you're actually looking across over at the linesman or you're looking behind you to actually see, is it going to, is, is there going to be a flag? So I think uh, I'd like to feel that I've answered your questions, not by one answer, but a number of illustrations to. Um, but like all these things, it's well-intentioned, but it's not worked and it's not going to work. You have answered it beautifully. 
I could not have put that any different. I could not have put that any more nicer than that. To be honest, we've had people on the show yeah. that have basically said, get rid of it. It's not working. Yeah. You know, they've said that the referee's job is now the most hardest job in world football because you've got so many elements now to yeah. cover. And yeah, it's not, yeah. as you say, in a, as you say, in a nice, polite way, it's not working. <laughs> it's really yeah. not working. And, 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 and more importantly, I don't think it's going to work either because I think I'm all one for technology. We've looked at the enhancement of technology, but ultimately there are just some things the ref need an aid, I get an aid, but I get the majority of it being left to the referees, he or she's human eye. So what we have to do is to raise the bar of the quality of the refereeing, you know, in terms of their fitness levels, in terms of making it more accessible, instead of providing more wider opportunities for ex, you know, for women, for players from minorities, for ex-players, from players of colour, you know, yes, people like Sam Allison, let's bring more of that in, you know, Rebecca Welsh, let's bring more of that in, let's create the pathway of opportunity, but there's enough game money now, in, you know, in football now, that we can now bring in people of the highest order to train them, to make them be their very best. That's also in fitness levels as well. You know, that's obviously full-time referees with what we've got. So it's constantly evolving. But I think sometimes what we have to be brave at saying, if it's not working, then change it. Take the good of it, but keep the simplicity of it. And the referee's eye and the referee's sole judgment is the most important thing that needs to come out of this moving forward. No, no problem having that information in your ear or getting an opinion in your ear, but you've got the monitor, use the monitor, and the referee, he or she, has got their own expertise. Speaking of things not working successfully, let's talk about Chelsea Football Club of 2024. Pochettino's been in there now for a while. Clear Lake and Todd and others spent God knows how many millions on young talent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not going to say they're rubbish players. Mm. They are young talent. It seems it's not working. Whatever model they're trying to build, whatever formula they're trying to create, it doesn't seem to be working at the moment. What's your take on Chelsea of 2024? Firstly, you know, like all these things happen, you had the previous era, sustainable success under Abramovich, a great time, things come to an end. New era, new owners, it's transition. It's transition. And the challenges in football, especially with a club like Chelsea, supporters don't have time for transition. Hmm. And the way they embrace transition is by getting outcomes on the field of play to give them confidence. And there are cultural challenges off the field. And because I'm seeing it in my own world, what I do. And to address the cultural issues off the field, you have to get short-term results on the field. So at least the supporters can feel and see progress. Obviously, they brought in Graham Potter, who's a good guy, very was right for Chelsea at the time, but obviously that didn't work out. And they've obviously made some interim choices, which, you know, in terms of outcomes, never yielded the outcomes that the ownership would have wanted. Now, I do feel they've got the right man and they've got the best man for the job. But he needs time. So the question is being asked, since he has come in, should Chelsea have made more progress than what they've made in terms of outcomes? He's got a very big bloated squad. I think he will have to identify his squad, his personality, his team. Everybody needs a striker. Chelsea have got potential strikers, but what they need is an oven, what I call an oven-ready striker. A striker to come in and hit the ground running. Because yeah. the ones they've got are good players. All the players have got are good players. You know, I've heard criticism of Nicholas Jackson. He's still a good player. You know, the boy uh, uh, um, they've got from, uh, is it Mur Murder? 
Uh, Mudrick, yeah, Mudrick. Mudrick. Sorry, forgive me if my pronunciation. That's right. <laughs> he is potentially a good player. So the average age they've got. So this is what I call, this is transition to get to what I call a next-gen Chelsea. So everything, what I've just said in that statement, is happening now. So they, they have to gel. You've got to get consistency because continuity and stability equals success. Chelsea need the continuity and the stability off the field to, to be consistent with the transitioning they're trying to make on the field. And one plus two equals three. And at the moment, it's all well-intentioned, moved in the right direction in terms of the intentions, but they're not yielding the outcomes in terms of results to evidence that evolution inside the club post-Abramovich era. And that's only going to be measured by the supporters of outcomes. So whilst they're not getting the outcomes, the supporters are not, they're not interested in anything else because nothing else really relates to their mindsets. Because a lot of them, and that's not being disrespectful, this is supporters across the whole game. Some, the majority are not cognizant of the issues and the challenges and the cultural changes internally because they can contribute to positive. If you look at all the big teams, that's one thing. You look at Manchester City, you know, you look at Manchester United over the years, you know, you, you know, you look at Chelsea during their, their pomp. The culture was right off the field. And that was the catalyst, not just to getting results on the field, but sustainable results, consistency, because you've got that continuity and stability equals success. That's what Chelsea have to um, re-collaborate with. They have to, and, and they are, there's an aspiration to do that. And all I'm saying to you, Lawrence, is what they know. So Pochettino is working through this process. And maybe someone should feel, with the talent at his disposal, the outcome should have been better. That's not me to judge. He has got that talent, and I think he has assessed that talent. But they need to establish that consistency and that continuity, and that comes from him identifying his best his best 20 and on top of that saying those that he wants he wants those that are surplus they have to move on and then in terms of what I call real genuine immediate acquisition it's an it's it's a it's an oven ready top class striker we'll see how Well, I was going to say, we'll see how this season plays out between now yeah. and May, and hopefully yeah. we'll... And it's transition. It's transition. And, but the thing is that the supporter levels, a club of that magnitude, you know, patience is key. But what I am very, very confident of, Pochettino's the right man and the most effective man for that job. And it's not a question of if he's going to get it right. It's going to be a question of when he gets it right. That's what I say with confidence, candor, and conviction, and certainty. Well, you've certainly heard it here first, folks. Pochettino, (laughs) all the way. Last question, Paul, and thank you again for your time. I know it's been a very busy schedule and a very tight schedule as well, so I appreciate your, your, your time today. Last question. How do you look back on your time at Chelsea Football Club? With immense pride, satisfaction, honour and humility. I can't tell you the amount of Chelsea supporters I've met, not just in the UK, but all over Europe, all over the world. And I'm so gracious and humble that they have shown me so much kindness, so much love and so much respect for what I've done at the club. So that's how I feel. I'm honoured, I'm humbled, I'm grateful and I'm very blessed to have won the blue shell of Chelsea and to have been a captain of Chelsea. Well, Paul, it's been an absolute honour to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on to talk about your time with with Chelsea. And hopefully one day we will see you back at the bridge very, very soon in better circumstances with Chelsea, of course. Absolutely. Not if, but when. So, uh, you know, I use a phrase. Alone we do so little, together everyone achieves more. T-E-A-M, together everyone achieves more. 
Chelsea's got a great team now within the structure of the organisation and they're building that and they're building a great team on the field of play. So it will happen. So good luck. Good luck to the Blues. Paul, thank you very much. Cheers.